Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. And here we are with another edition of the Children's Literature Channel of the New Books Network. And I'm Mel Rosenberg, your host, and I have the most wonderful, wonderful guest today, Lita Judge. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Incredible, internationally acclaimed, prize-winning author-illustrator. And I've been wanting to meet you for years and years. Thank you. It's a joy to be here. <laughs> and, I, and I did. And um, it's very kind of you to wake up so early in, uh, in I would say, rural, I'm guessing you rural New Hampshire. You're not We're a city rural. person. You're yeah. not a city person. How, how close is the nearest human being to you and Dave? Oh, well, the human beings aren't too far. I mean, I, I grew up on an uninhabited island. I was born on an uninhabited island in Alaska. So I feel like I've moved to Metropolis. We have a grocery store and a post office. Um, it's a bit of a haul if you need to go to a doctor or something like that. But, um, you know, we're pretty close to to the, the we used to have our food delivered by float plane that would drop it. Um, from the air and we'd collect it. So this feels pretty comfortable. Although I do still share my home with, uh, we have bears and foxes and deer on the property and, you know, live in the woods, which is exactly where I need to be. So um, you, you're talking about the Alaskan island you grew up on that had food drops? Yes, my my uh, father was actually a soil scientist when I was born. We lived on, we were, he was stationed out of Ravella Cajito near Ketchikan, um, but then he would map. Oh, everybody so- knows where those are. Yes. <laughs> somewhere in Alaska, to the left of Alaska somewhere. It is a pretty quiet place in the world. Yes. When I was born, when I was born, I think it had half a mile of road and that's the, that was the main island. And then we would take uh, float planes out and he would map areas. So I grew up in some pretty remote areas. And I also grew up living in a car for much of my life because of different things that happened um, later. And we were always out in the woods and far from town. So the fact that I can pop down the hill and go to a little market is quite a luxury. (laughs) There's a a legend, Lita, that you were born in an igloo. (laughs) 
<laughs> not quite more like a tent, but <laughs> no, they did. Uh, they did get my mom to a hospital in time. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. And um, so I, I've really never interviewed anybody with, with the, with a biography that even um, comes close to yours. Um Growing up in the wilderness, you're like the the female Mowgli of of of, uh, of children's literature here, um, <laughs> living among the animals and drawing them. Um, so I want to ask you, um, when did you realize that you had this this wonderful gift of illustration? Oh, you know, it took me a long time because because I lived in such remote areas and grew up. Um, I was so. Um, I was surrounded with nature and and that's a huge part of my work now, but I was not surrounded by the opportunity to know that being an artist could be a career for me. Um, it, I my my dad was a scientist, my grandparents were scientists. My grandparents were actually um, were credited for saving prairie chickens from going extinct, which is a form of grouse. And they also worked very hard to breed uh, eagles in captivity long before we even know how to, how to do that. They worked for 16 years with a golden eagle. Um, and I was raised, I was, spent much a lot of time with them. So surrounded with eagles and owls, but I wasn't surrounded by people who did this for a living and didn't even have a concept. I, I drew because I was sent out into nature to observe the animals. My grandparents would have us work on the marsh and van hawks and I would take little field notes and my mom um, loved to take um, keep journals. And, you know, so I just grew up thinking that's what everybody did. I didn't think of that, though, as something that could grow into a career. So I studied geology and I worked on dinosaur digs and um, I met my husband and on our first Christmas together, he took me to the Met and in New York. Um, he was from um, New Jersey and had family in New York. And we walked in and they were showing a show of Renaissance drawings. And I actually burst into tears. I was just so blown away by the art. And I came home from that trip, quit my job as a geologist and set about trying to become an artist. And it took me a long time because first I designed note cards and bookmarks and you know, just trying to make money. My husband was oh, still in college. One and, second. You were not an artist growing up? No, I've never, I never actually went to a school large enough to have an art class. Um, but my grandparents were ornithologists and they would send us out in the field every day to observe. And my, and my parents too were naturalists and great observers. And geology is a, is a science of observation. You know, we would map and look for tiny clues about how the earth is constructed. And I realized so much about being a great illustrator or, or, you know, striving to do some, to capture the essence of an animal or a human is to be a great observer. Um, and you need a, also curiosity and imagination. And if you grow up in the woods, living in a car um, without kids to play with, you develop a very big imagination because you construct stories in your mind to keep yourself entertained and you're curious because you're surrounded by the natural world and you're learning to observe. So I had everything I needed to become an illustrator. It just wasn't the conventional way of how we often so think of it. Run us through this. So so you were you were a young storyteller. Yes. When, when, when was your earliest storytelling that you remember or did you keep a diary of stories or what? I... You know, it's this. I was a storyteller to myself long before I was even um, literate. Um, my 
living in a car meant that I didn't have a lot of toys. Um, so I was constantly had, I know a lot of children have imaginary friends. I held on to my imaginary friends long past the normal age because those imaginary friends were my community. And a lot of my books are based on those imaginary friends. And one of my books, Red Sled, was actually a book that came straight out of a journal that I kept when I was eight years old watching Grizzly Bears in the Wild. So wow. um so these books, a lot of my books have grown from those experiences. I know my earliest story is about a cat and a bat and a hat. And I'm pretty sure that my mom taught me to, you know, put letters together to make words. And I was often running to great stories. It was years before I ever had the courage to uh, tell a story um, with, a, with an audience in mind. And actually, it was my first book, 1000 Tracings, um, was based on my grandparents and a relief effort that they did after World War II. And in their attic, I found um, tracings of feet and letters and pictures of people from Europe that they had helped. And I had no idea they had done this after World War II. And One second, um, so run, run me through this. I mean, you know, I'm. Um, you're going to, um, I, we have to have more than one interview. <laughs> if you're willing, I, you know, I, I'm telling you right now, there's no way we're going to cover everything today. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. Okay. <laughs> who, who did your parents help in the war? Who were your parents? This are my grandparents. Grandparents, yeah. And when they passed away, they had this beautiful old house that didn't have running water. It was a, a house that they had moved out onto the marsh in order to do their research with uh, prairie chickens, rough grouse. And a former grouse. And so I knew their world as ornithologists. I didn't know that they had done this incredible relief effort that lasted for three years after World War II. And after they had passed away, I'm going through all their belongings and I found these foot tracings and these letters. And I went downstairs to ask my mom, why, does, why did my grandmother have a box full of hundreds and hundreds of foot tracings? And she told me about this relief effort. So the little girl on the book, is actually my mom was a little girl when this was happening and um the family in it the mother in this family is my grandmother but they it turned out they worked very very hard to get food and clothing sent to people who had lost their homes all over europe so um it, it entailed 11 different countries and they found neighbors to adopt families and they were sending food and clothing and to the point where um, there was a story where my grandfather had to go in for uh he's giving a lecture or something he needed his suit and he went upstairs to get his one and only suit and the suit was gone because my grandmother had mailed the suit off to a family and um so hey, people from people from what countries uh germany russia poland italy um, all over switzerland and i found on the envelopes i found addresses and i was actually able to find 38 families who had received these packages and one of the people who received the package had actually kept all of my grandmother's letters. She had 68 letters from my grandmother during the course of the three years that they were mailing these um, packages. And that letter, those letters really showed me how my grandmother, I couldn't figure out how they could afford it. They were living in a house that didn't have electricity or running water and they were ornithologists. I mean, they didn't have this kind of money, but these letters talked about getting all their friends and neighbors on board. Um, people were canning food from their gardens and selling the proceeds to earn the money for the postage and giving away. So, so your grandparents were running a kind of a mini Marshall plan in Europe. 
it, it was actually, we found out later, it was the largest relief effort by um, an independent organization. What, what, what was motivating them? My grandmother, um, she was an interesting woman because she was a scientist and she was very, um, I always thought she was kind of emotionally remote because she was very strict and she was very driven. But she um, had family in Europe and they died of starvation. And it was, my mother said it was the only time she ever saw my 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 grandmother fall apart. And, um, and they got a letter from a colleague of my grandfather's who they had never met. They had only exchanged um, letters through their scientific work and were aware of how much more um, need there was. And so they were just completely driven to try to make a difference for people. And some of these families, one was uh, Conrad Lorenz who ended up getting the Nobel prize. And um, some, one was uh, Peter Cromer who became the president <clears throat> of the Wildlife Foundation. So I was able to find so a th lot. These, of these, these were people who, who uh, had some, some kind of relationship to the world of science and ornithology. It started that way. That was the contact that gave them the connections on Incredible. the ground. And then they said, if you know anybody else, send letters. And all of a sudden, my grandparents were getting hundreds of letters. Um, it, you know, it ended up being thousands of people that they and they got and they got thousands of people to help, too. They didn't they didn't do all of this alone. They they you know, they massed a community of people to make a difference, which was truly remarkable. Wow. This was some kind of Christian ethic. What was what was the ethic behind it? Just of people helping, helping, people. helping your fellow man. Yeah, exactly. Incredible. I, I salute the memory of your grandparents. And, and and so and so Lita, you like you have a whole history of, of science, uh, of people who barely made a living as scientists. So you decided to become rich by becoming an illustrator author. <laughs> yep. But one I'm, thing my grandparents I'm, taught me was live a life of passion, that that matters more. <laughs> exactly. For the people watching, listening, I'm being facetious here. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's hard to become a, a millionaire, even when you're as famous and as wonderful as Lida is. Um, so so um, I guess that my next question is, so you had written from a young age, but you weren't drawing and then you saw... No, actually, I was drawing, but I wasn't writing. So these stories that I was telling, creating as a child were visual stories. Ah, so you were drawing. You just didn't know that you were drawing. Nobody nobody told you that you were... <laughs> no, I knew I was drawing. I just didn't know that it could be a career. I didn't know that uh, uh, people okay. could make a living doing this. I just thought this was something you did, like you go for a walk or you have a hot cup of tea with your cat on your lap. It's something you do to create joy. <laughs> It's, it's beautiful, and, and you essentially were self-taught. You took pe pencil, and they would would they, would they drop uh, would they drop paper and 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 paper and pencils and uh, crayons from airplanes, or uh, you had a steady flow. You know, one thing my mom did always, even though we didn't have a lot of possessions, it was uh, in fact we had very little possessions because we were always on the move. Um, but she always made sure I had a journal and a pencil because she um, she herself kept journals and my grandparents kept journals. In fact, my grandparents, they call it, they call it the red books. You know, they kept a history, a record of their life and their observations in nature. And so I wasn't thinking of it as art and um, I wasn't drawing for creating art. I was drawing because I was taught 
growing up with scientists, I was taught that we observe and we record. It was It's like a memory palace. I call it my journals, my memory palace. It's this place where you keep the things you've learned, the things you've noticed, and you never know what those details. In the case of my grandfather and grandmother, they were studying um, endangered animals and trying to piece together how do we save these. And so it was this legacy of learning to observe and learning to value what you're observing, letting the world make its mark on you. Um, you know, I wasn't thinking of it in terms of art. I was thinking of it in terms of just taking in this beautiful world. This is something beautiful you just said, because we always talk about leaving your mark on the world. Yeah, and I know. And it around to the world, leaving its mark on you. That's so beautiful. I so, feel that as an artist, yeah. So, Lita, so you were kind of self-taught. You drew because you thought that's what people do, the same way that you have tomato soup for lunch or whatever. Right. <laughs> and, and, and then you went to an exhibit at the Met, and you were blown away. And then, and then how, what did you do? So I went home. I quit my job as a geologist. I started a no-card bookmark business where I made little pictures of drawings of animals because I'd grown up drawing animals. And I sold those no-cards and bookmarks all across the country. I had, I had customers. I was selling them wholesale to like national parks and gift shops and and slowly working my way towards selling paintings in galleries. And then one day I came. One day I, you didn't you didn't go to art school, art college. You don't have a degree in art. No, I. You know, my husband and I saved up to go to Europe for about six years with the goal that if I could paint on location there and sell those paintings and earn the money back for the trip that we would go again. And that's what we did. We saved up about six years to go to the first time. And then I painted on location. I sold those paintings, earned the money back. We went back to Europe six months later, and then we went back and back and we went to everywhere there was a great museum. So Sweden to see Zorn and Sargent and Soroya and Russia. And um, we went to France to see the great painters. And I had read in a book that Degas learned to paint by copying paintings in museums. And I thought if it was good enough for Degas, it seemed like a pretty good idea. And so I don't really think of myself as self-taught. I think I had a lot of guides. Um, a lot of them have left the planet and but they left their work behind and they're they, it's there for us to learn from so i feel like i had you know incredible teachers just most of them were passed on but their work is still here for us to I learn know from. but i mean you see something you you still need to develop techniques you know um don't you i think that's a lot of trial and error i mean i do sculpting too and i just you know hands in clay figure it out <laughs> <laughs> okay, listen, you know, you're reminding me of all the wonderful musicians and singers, you know, mm. that couldn't they couldn't read music. Um Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you just love it and your brain I, gets excited. I, do, do, do you love music too? I do, deeply. So I once wrote to Judy Collins, who was a, a 60s hero of mine. Um she uh made Leonard Cohen famous and uh, yeah I love uh, her work I yeah. love her music and uh, I I um and uh I once wrote her and asked her if she had any message for my students and um she said keep a diary always keep a diary mm. and um this uh, I'm reminded of this from uh, from the world of music um so um this is incredible 
So, so how did you then morph into uh, writing children's books? So I had worked my way towards selling art in galleries. I'd sold the note card and bookmark business and I was in about six galleries and my husband was out of college and was working as an engineer. And so I had, I had worked like crazy while he was in school and then he was going to take a turn and let me explore what I needed to learn or, you know, do to, to, to go down further into my art career. And I was washing dishes with him on a Sunday. And I said, you know, if I could do anything, I'd write and illustrate children's books. And he threw down the dish towel and he said, well, then just do it already. And apparently I had said it over and over and over again. So that day I thought I'm going to write. I love stories like this. I'm going to try this. (laughs) And honestly, 1000 Tracings had a lot to do with it too, because um, I had a story that I had such regret that I didn't know this about my grandparents. And I wondered if I realized that all the kids who had received packages were now grandparents. Um, You know, they were my mother's age and they were the age that they would be grandparents. And I wondered, did they share this story? And I, I just realized that the stories I had been telling myself my whole life, these stories are, that's how we build community. And as a, as a youngster, um, when we lived in a car and then even when we didn't live in the car, we were constantly moving, constantly moving, never staying in a school um, for longer than a few months. And I didn't have an extensive family. I had my grandparents, but I, I didn't grow up with cousins. And and so I, I, I yearned for that sense of community. And I realized stories had been the thing that gave me community. And I realized if you share, if you could get the courage to share your stories, you create an actual community, not just Mm -hmm. one that lives in your head. And it was the truest, the biggest gift in my life was publishing my first book and then realizing I could do it again and again and just build a sense of community for myself. So uh, we shared this before we went online that for me, um, the kidlet community is like a congregation for me. It's like a a calling. It's it's more of a religion than a business or anything. Um, That's good because I've lost a lot of money in this in this congregation. Um, so, but the, so the, the, the question is, okay, so you have this, this Eureka moment um, in the kitchen, um, washing the dishes with Dave, and then having this moment, okay, damn it, this is what I want to do. But I'm going to say that there's a reason that you illustrate picture books and write picture books mainly. And that's because Lita is also a five-year-old yeah i think you, it's, don't, you don't have to agree with me right i yeah i because i i've never thought of it that way and i um as you say that i realize there is an aspect of it because there's an aspect of giving yourself comfort for a time period in your life when you needed comfort most and when i was five my life was very unstable and the uh, having home having community having extensive family those those didn't exist for me so in some ways I don't think of myself as a five-year-old, but in some ways I do create because I have this yearning to provide comfort for a child who feels they need comfort. My books, a lot of the books, um, a lot of the themes of my books are providing joy and comfort or um, fighting back isolation. Um, The other thing though, the reason I write picture books and the reason I've always said is because I'm dyslexic and I I didn't have a lot of access to books when I was a child. Only I was a very bright kid in school, but reading was a challenge. And I 
grew up under this idea that being dyslexic is a handicap or, you know, a disability. And I, as a, an adult, realized dyslexia for me, I'm not speaking for everybody, but for me, it was it was kind of my superpower because what I couldn't understand with words, my 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 brain is so visual. It's so incredibly visual. I process everything visually. I enjoy, I savor, I want to tell stories that way. And so picture books is the perfect your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I, I'm, I'm not an artist, but like I had now an aha moment because you're not only a visual, your artwork is, has uh, has depth mm. and, um, and, and and it's three-dimensional. Mm. And I watched one of your videos when you were like adding colors and I said, wow, how does she know how to get the depth like that? So maybe that explains it but but lita i'm i'm going to challenge you to think about this more because i think that as writers for five and six year olds um we are writing to our own five and six year old um and that's why we do it and and what you said is very is very beautiful that you are um comforting consoling um the five year old that um is going to is going to read and love your book but um, I think it, it always comes from writing to our own inner child. That's that's my feeling. But I do agree with that. I do agree completely. I mean, the 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 act of creating a book takes such faith and such perseverance and such joy that we can't do it unless there is a personal motivation there as well. I mean, it just it, it's it, it it the book I wrote, Mary's Monster. I mean, it's not a picture book. It's 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 an older book, so. I feel it, like it, say, it says it's young adults, but it, it's it's really for adults too. I I, I can't. Right. Yeah. I, I, there's no boundaries for and, this book. I, I I don't want to interview you because I don't. I, I'm really it's way out of my league. But yeah. um it's just if you could just show a picture or two, uh, it's it's stunning. The the um the 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 lyrics um, it it's hard to know whether uh mary shelley is writing this or lita judge and 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 i think that you know it's a story about ghosts and monsters and i i think that um if there is such a thing as ghosts and monsters then um the the, the this connection between you and mary shelley is is a is a real ephemeral one um i also think it's a book about strength and courage it's a book about survival. It's but, a book oh, about isolation. Look at look look at the depth in that in that picture. It's incredible. So for me, this was a book about a young woman who had a lot of obstacles, really painful obstacles thrown in her path, and yet she used her courage and her inner strength and her brilliance to carve out a way out for herself, and then also to provide such a huge role model to us all. Two hundred years later, this book is still relevant to us, and we're still. You know, we're still learning from it. And so I guess that's what I mean by I'm not always 
in that five-year-old place. Mm -hmm. For me, I think that some of these emotions are universal. Um, I think that a lot of my books, like 1000 Tracings and When You Need Wings for particularly, I have a lot of adult readers for this book yeah. because I think that all of us come to places in our life, whether it's health or something in our family life or something in our jobs or, or I mean, there's so many things in this world, as you know, that create a sense of complete fear or a lack of security. And um, tell me my, about it. I'm in Israel. Yes, we have a war exactly, going on. Exactly. So I'm thinking of you so much these days. And, and thank you. Uh, so I think, I guess I think I, what I'm trying to say is for me, it's not an age thing. It's, um, it's a, it's a, it's an emotion that we experience th that feeling of aloneness or that feeling of needing to know it's going to be okay. And so when I'm creating a book, I'm trying to actually create a picture book that's meant because a lot of my picture books are, are read in the laps of a grandparent. I mean, I have to write a book that appeals to a four year old and a 94 year old sometimes. And if I've done my job well, hopefully that 94 year old hears something in those words as well and sees something in those pictures. And I do have so many adult readers who make me feel like I, you know, for sure. But a, a, a picture book is, I'm going to argue now that it's for a five-year-old, could be four or six, um, a, whom we, we, we've never met. And and the five-year-old's parents, grandparents, librarians, teachers, and, and what have you. Um, but it's, it's still at the base, at the, at the base it's, it, it's, it's a book for their inner five-year-olds too. Um, and... Uh, so, so we're going to put Mary's monster aside. Maybe we'll get back to it in a future interview. Um, I, I, I just, I just say that it, it's like Mary Shelley coming to life in your, in your hands. Mm. That's how I, I feel like she's channeling. Um, I don't believe in this, of course, because I'm a scientist. But mm -hmm. um, if, if there were such a thing, you, this book is really an embodiment of, of who she was and who you are. Um, and and, and it's a very it, yeah. I spent six years following her life, reading every letter she ever read. Every I know, journal. and and and, and, and you had and, and and who took the professional pictures of you in in England doing the research? Oh, that was my husband. He was pretty. He lived alongside of me as I obsessively but worked he, on the book. He, but he was. <laughs> it, it, there's a word prescient, prescient in English. Prescient. I yes. don't know how to pronounce yes. it. Um, in the sense that he said, "I'm going to take very high quality footage." Of Lita creating the research and doing the doing this book, which is really brilliant. So that's well, off we to were date. fortunate in that we that wasn't my first book, and one of the things I've learned, I, it took me so long to become a writer and an illustrator, and to have that confidence in myself because as a child I was labeled dyslexic. You know, I wasn't. Nobody expected me to grow up and be a writer. And one of the things that I'm always driven to share, and it's why I do a lot of school visits, is I want kids who are visual to understand that they are storytellers as well. And so I've I've worked really hard, both in school visits and websites, creating material that can apply to a child who wants to be a writer or an illustrator. And maybe they come from it from the word side of life, and that's wonderful. And I think there's something they can be gained. But I don't think that there's enough provided to children who are visual like me to say, this is how you do it. This is the process. This is, 
And, and, and just because you think in the world visually, it doesn't mean you can't grow up to be a storyteller. And so I do like to document a lot of how I work because I would have loved that as a child. I would have loved to have an illustrator walk in the classroom and say, you too can grow up and create stories to share with others. Mm -hmm. It's just like Reynolds' uh, book, uh, The Dot, except that uh, you are the dot. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, let's celebrate. Let's celebrate. Um, let's celebrate. So you have this book, wonderful book that came out in September. Uh, Don't worry, Waddles. And I just noticed that when I was when I was making notes, I wrote worry with a with a U. Don't worry. <laughs> um, so so uh, this is a, a great book. It's uh, it's out with Athenium, um, and uh, and you sold it yourself. You you have like. How many books have you already published? About two dozen, no? Uh, 36, I think, are out in the world. And I have five. Oh, give or, so it's two dozen, give or take a dozen. Yeah. <laughs> 36 books. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. I have, I have more reading to do. Okay. And you have <laughs> five in the works. Yes. And you wake up in the morning, you say, today I feel like I'm going to do book number C. Oh, no, it starts long before that. <laughs> Okay, well, you know what? I, I think that three in the morning, I, I, my brain is like a little hamster on a wheel. <laughs> Lita, I want to do another uh, interview with you and talk about like the process of like from the book from the beginning until the. Um, if you're not tired of me, we can schedule again in a few months. You'll have another book out, so we'll have another excuse. When's your next book out? Um, I have a book that I illustrated. I haven't illustrated for other people as often, although I'm, I'm loving, I've, I represented myself for a long time and now I have an agent. And one of the reasons I chose to have an agent was I thought it would be lovely to start illustrating other people's words as well. So I have a book called Blessy's Pets that's coming out in the spring, which was uh, a, an anthology of poems curated by the wonderful Lee Bennett Hopkins. And um, and then I have a book, my own book coming out called Wake Up Moon, which is a celebration of the of walking. My grandmother used to, no matter what the weather, she used to kick us out of the house and have us walk under a full moon. She she was passionate about full moons and she shared that with me. And so this this book is um it's just a big thank you letter to her. Um, but it's a whimsical fiction fictional story. You know, Jewish, Jewish, Jewish people celebrate holidays by the moon. Like um, Passover is a full moon holiday. Um, the Jewish New Year is a new moon holiday. Yeah. All of our holidays are, um, is Passover? I can't remember. I think it's the, the full moon. Um, and um, and so uh, this is uh, remarkable. And mm. let's talk about Waddles. Waddles was just a breath of fresh air for me. I write a lot of history and science and it's intense and a lot of research. And then I need to play and have fun. And also I really, this thing about providing joy and comfort is really a, a reoccurring theme for me. And Waddles is just about joy and comfort. Though it came, like a lot of my books, they come out of a period of struggle. This book was started the week of lockdown during COVID, when we all closed our doors and shut in and were afraid and didn't know what to expect, we also had a hurricane hit <laughs> and trees down and we lost our power and it felt like the world was coming like unglued, unhinged. And I sat on the window seat with a headlamp blocking in. I, I don't write my books first. I draw them. 
um, first, and then I find the words eventually. But I drew this story, and it's about a little duck who knows that a storm is coming, and he's a little bit worried about it, but he's got this wonderful friend in, in this Waddles the sheep, and he's like, don't worry, Waddles, I have a plan. He just needs a little scarf. And eventually he starts, um, He so he's taken care of, but then he's worried about Rooster. So then he makes Rooster just a little hat. And he's worried about the bunny. So he's just making, of course, nobody else is all that concerned about it, but this is a an overactive little ducky who's just trying to make sure everybody has what he need what they need and there's a goat and a bunny and a dog the goat with a... the goat gets leggings yes the goat gets leggings i, I love it i love it <laughs> and then at, towards the end there's um piggies who get onesies so eventually we know what's going to happen to Wuggles cuz he's he's losing his wool so ducky means well but eventually what well, wait, don't, don't don't give away the ending okay I but it was that... just it was my reaction to this idea I remember when lockdown hit in our area there was you know there were shortages I'm sure everywhere there were shortages because everybody was hoarding food and um toilet paper and you know we were all like just doing our best to react to, to none of us had any control over our lives and it was terrifying and this and was you, my... you, guys, you guys probably had to drive 500 miles to get them it we we were lucky though compared to i i would i my heart went out to everybody who were living in really urban areas um you know i i feel like we actually did um fairly well during that time but boy what a crazy time it so, was so Lita, I'm, I'm just going to say that I, I i love this story uh it has it has an ending that surprised me um <laughs> And I, I always teach that the, the you know books have to wrap around and uh, yes and they have to end somewhere near where they begin, um, especially and, for picture books because unlike novels, I, I, picture I just, books I just talk about picture books over and over and over I'm, again. I'm addicted to picture books. I, I, <laughs> Me too. I can't talk about it. I can't talk about anything else really. <laughs> um, so um, that's wonderful. And, and and the book that came out in April. It's such a starkly different book. Also wonderful. Also one of my favorite subjects, which are dogs. Yes. And 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 so to to do a waddles, you have to have a brilliant, you know, um, a creative moments and 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 and, and you know, uh, and and pull the wool over everybody's eyes and so on. And and this is like nonfiction. This is real nonfiction from the get go. Yeah. This is the scientific leader judge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this book covers 40,000 years of evolution and how dogs or wolves evolved into dogs and then how humans, how our evolution was affected by our partnership with dogs and how so many of our advancements, like our first mode of transportation, our ability to keep livestock because we had dogs to help herd and guard the livestock. So therefore, our ability to start to stop being nomadic and start making settlements and and then on to how dogs have helped us you know unfortunately with really challenging things like um they've been on the battlegrounds with us during war um so you know that we have uh, dogs. we now have uh about 140 hostages in the in gaza who knows how they are and we had um several dozen come come back in exchange for prisoners here 
and one of them, Mia, uh, had a um, ha- had her dog with her, Bella. Mm. Mm. And uh, when I read your book, it brought tears to my eyes because this was such a uh, poignant story, and 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 part of her ability to survive physically and emotionally in these tunnels in uh, in Gaza uh, mm. was the little dog that she had, just like yeah. a ten pound little cuddly dog. Um, And because I'm still sort of a scientist, Um, what I teach and what I I believe is that um, we we didn't civilize uh, the dogs. The the dogs civilized us. Yeah, well, and I I state in the book that they they call it self-taming, but, you know, the wolves saw the benefit of our partnership. You know, they are an incredibly intelligent and also a community um they work in a community they 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 function as they hunt together they raise young together um so yeah but Lita, what i what i argue uh, often is that the dogs tamed us more than we tamed them mm-hmm. i love that thought yeah um, well and, and it, what, this is a beautiful part... book show show everybody some of the spreads from your gorgeous book so it starts off right right from the get-go. It's 56 pages, and it starts off with the end paper, and it's a wolf. And it starts with a poem talking about us, you know, when we lived in caves. And um, huddled, tired, and cold, we stare into darkness. The night is long, and danger lurks. Distant howl, snap of twig, something large draws near. Amber eyes catch the light. Is it a threat? No, it is a friend. And this talks about, I think it goes on to the title page, and then it goes on to the science of how wolves um, evolved into dogs. And and then it, it just goes on and on through history about all these different advancements that we as humans made, partly due to our partnership with dogs. So herding our, our, our first livestock. So this is in the Crescent Valley 11,000 years ago, um, talking about the first dogs who were kept as pets and kept it had different functions and we can tell what jobs they performed in our communities based on their names in some of the early ones and then uh talked about our early obsession in the middle ages royalty would actually wear their dogs and tied up and you know wear baskets with ribbons and if, if you walk along the streets of tel aviv today you'll see a lot of dogs being worn yes <laughs> this, is, this is not uncommon yes in the present uh, urban day and age. So it just goes on and on, you know, all the way through modern times and um, both the, um, the 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 jobs they do for us, but also the joy and the love that they give us. And this book was inspired also by COVID because you know, remember when we were all locked down, at, um, at least here, everybody was adopted. The animal shelters were suddenly empty because everybody was adopting companions. I and mean, it was a lonely time and a very challenging time. And I know for me, I was incredibly grateful to have a house full of critters and, and you know, that energy and that love and that companionship. And um, when we faced a lot of instability as a child and we were constantly moving and constantly sometimes in a car and sometimes um, in a trailer and new school and we had a large dog who was actually in the author's note. Um, let's see if I can find a picture of Kier. I had- It's lovely, the big dog and the little you. Yeah, the big dog, little He was my constant companion. 
He's also my guard dog. Mom used to, you know, we lived way out of town. And if mom needed to go to town to get supplies, she always knew we were safe because Kier was, you know, protecting me. And um, so this, a lot of my books are like love songs to things that I feel grateful for. And I felt incredibly grateful for Kier. And also as a person who uh, studied science and was a geologist, I love sinking my teeth into that research and learning. You know, a book is an opportunity. You're creating it so a child can learn, but you're really creating it so that you can learn too. And it was the subject that I just... Um, you know, I used to work in paleontology and I love evolution. And I thought, wouldn't it be incredibly interesting to go through this 40,000 years of evolution um, that dogs have been by our side. So it was a, it was a fun journey for me to create as well. Absolutely. Um, well, we've talked for 45 minutes and we haven't talked enough about your process. And we're going to save that for the spring. Okay. Sounds I good. I just want to say that, now that I, now I can a little bit understand your your writing in the context of what you've said because you have a special voice that is not exactly lyrical. People would say it's lyrical, but actually, it's it's like a, a visual voice of Lita Judge, mm -hmm. and yeah. that's that's incredible. Um, and thank you for sharing this with us. And and um, I'm gonna we'll, we'll be in touch. Uh, in the spring, you, I'm sure you have a, a publishing date. Wonderful, and, yes. Uh, and your and your wall will be rebuilt by then. Yes, <laughs> I'll be back in my studio. And I'm, maybe uh... maybe uh, Dave and the parrot will be able to say hello to us. <laughs> and and um, the cats will saunter by as well. <laughs> I, I have one question that I have to ask you before. Also, we should mention your your agent. Uh, Hey, Jennifer yes, Loughran. Jennifer Loughran. She's wonderful um, with Andrea Brown. And I. And, and, so, so you, you, you sold three dozen books and then you said by yourself and then you said, oh, well, maybe I'll have an agent. <laughs> well, Incredible. I started off with an agent long ago and then um, and then for a long time, I did not have an agent for for the bulk of my career. Um, and then for different reasons, uh, for multiple reasons, I thought it would be lovely to have uh, a partnership with somebody um, who had a vested interest in my career. You know, COVID actually affected publishing a lot. <laughs> things changed a lot. And then I had some health things that really changed things a, a lot as well. And this is our only income. And I have loved being kind of in charge of all of that. And, and a lot of people think you have an agent to sell books. And that is one reason to have an agent. Um, I didn't need an agent for that reason. But I didn't realize all the other things that an agent can do for you because I hadn't had you know that wonderful experience. And Jennifer has just brought so much to the table that I was doing myself. But she she does it so much better because this is what she excels at. And then I can just focus on the writing and the illustrating, which is wonderful. Incredible. I think as a child, having control in my life was like a big thing. You know, when I grew up, I wanted control. And I think I'm learning the joy of getting a little bit older is that you can share your life and have, have you know, network and, and build a life with people where we're each kind of looking out for each other. And um, what a gift that is. That's so beautiful. That's really beautiful because you know, um, as a as a uh, as a, a, an author who can't draw a stick man, 
<laughs> now, I, I know you're going to say I can, but really trust me, I cannot. Um, <laughs> in order to get a, a book published, um, you have to lose control in order to have a book. Yes. Um, this so. is something that is very difficult to, to learn. Um, anyway, so the, the last question I want to ask you, because we're going to have a whole wonderful talk in the spring about your process and how you write a book from A to Z. Uh, or is it or is z to a in your case maybe yes <laughs> maybe. um is is your name lita my name lita is it's chilean and when for some reason when my parents were expecting me my dad was convinced i was going to be a boy my mom says and that he was going to be named joe after my dad's father josephine and i popped out and i was not a boy <laughs> So I guess they quickly needed a name and my mother's brother's roommate's wife was named Lita and they just loved the name. And I grew up my entire life never knowing anybody named Lita because it's apparently it's very um, common in South America and um, but very uncommon here. So I was often called Lisa. Um, the only time I ever met anybody named Lita was a dog had attacked a chicken of mine. I was chasing the the dog to get my chicken back. And the neighbor was shouting out, Lita, you get over here. And I was like, why is she yelling at me? Her dog is attacking my chicken. And it turns out the dog's name was Lita because the dog was a rescue dog from South America. And that's how I learned um, that it's actually a common name down there. Um so it's just it's just a funny little fluke that my parents landed on that name, and thank goodness they did because it's it's a it's been a fun name. Although I do get called Lisa a lot. My father-in-law called me Lisa for years before he really could embrace the fact that it's. I, I think that it, I think that if we look, we will find that in in, in it's a name that's also used. I think in like maybe Slavic or East European or Russian. Um, we'll have to have a look. I think that that's usually spelled E D though L E D A, isn't it? Because I haven't seen it in. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll have to take a look. Yeah, I'll have to look at that because um, I have encountered it um, in Russia, but but always with the L E D A. Yeah. So listen, this was incredible. Um, I'm just going to um, sign off. You're, you're going to go and come back, so we'll have just a, yes. you know, a tete a tete sub up. But yeah. uh, I hope you had fun. And, yeah, um, this has been a joy. Thank you for sharing your day with me. I, I've been, it's it's my complete joy. Uh, and as you know, I've, I've waited several years to, to e-meet you. Um, <laughs> so um, we've been celebrating with Lita Judge her two brand new books, uh, picture books. One is entitled Don't Worry Waddles. And the worry is spelled with an O. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a wonderful fiction book. And um, in the same year, a wonderful uh, nonfiction book on dogs, a history of our best friend. Yes, a history of our best friends. And um, great. I wish you tons of luck with everything. And uh, it's been wonderful. And before I forget, because usually I do, I'm Mel Rosenberg, and I'm the host of the Children's Literature Channel of the New Books Network. So, Lita, go ahead and come back in, and we'll sum up. And everybody else, run out and buy her wonderful books. Thank you, Mel. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks.